We are starting a series this morning through the book of 1 John. I'm not going to actually begin the text, 1 John 1 verse 1. I'll do that next time. We're just doing an introduction this morning because I feel like I need to set this series up. And uh, I don't intend to repeat this series. I expect the Lord to come back soon after this series is over. At least that's what I've shared with Him and uh, that I want. And uh, I want to get out of this place. I do. I want to get out of my body. That's what I want to do. Anyway, my body is not working well. Notice the book itself. The book itself. First John is the 23rd book in the New Testament. It is an epistle. An epistle is a message or a letter. And there are three epistles from John. First John, second John, and then third John. First John is the largest of those three epistles. Since this letter identifies no specific congregation, no specific location, and no specific addressee who received this message, this book is most often called a general epistle a general epistle because it is addressed to Christians in general. In a technical sense, 1 John doesn't have the common characteristics of a basic letter. There's no salutation or greeting, there's no name of the addressee, and there's no closing. 1 John is more of a poetic sermon than a letter, but historians still consider it a letter or an epistle. First John consists of five chapters, 205 verses, and 2,523 words contingent on the particular translation that we're using. Notice the author. First John and Hebrews are the only New Testament epistles where the author isn't identified. Although John does not actually name himself in this book, the overwhelming consensus is that John was its human author. Altogether, John authored five New Testament books, John's Gospel. Remember the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He authored John's Gospel, his three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then the prophetical book, Revelation. John authored the second most books of the New Testament. He authored five books, and Paul authored 13 books. His older brother was James. James. Each time the brothers are mentioned in Scripture, James' name is mentioned first, probably because he was the eldest. His parents were Zebedee and uh, Salome. Zebedee and Salome, and the actual name John means God is gracious, and God is gracious, or else we wouldn't be here. Notice the time and location. We aren't certain about the exact time and location of when and where this book originated. The best guess is that it was written from Ephesus in ancient Asia Minor toward the end of the first century probably from 90 to 95 A.D. Remember, ancient Asia Minor was located in what is now the western part of modern Turkey. Most historical sources agree that John became the actual pastor of the church at Ephesus. That church consisted of different small groups that met in houses, since actual church buildings weren't constructed until about the 4th century A.D. So this congregation consisted of a network of smaller groups that met in houses. 
Then Roman Emperor uh, Domitian had John tortured through dipping him into a vat of boiling oil. Um, John was burned and scarred, but he managed to survive that experience and was then banished to a prison island on a small uh, a prison camp on a small island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea off the coast of modern Turkey. Patmos still exists and is basically a tourist attraction. Some of our people have visited Patmos. John was forced to exist in a cave on that island. It was a harsh and difficult environment for someone in his 90s but he survived long enough to complete the writing of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. It is thought John died about 98 A.D. during the reign of Roman Emperor Trajan. John was selected to be one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, who in time were called his 12 apostles. John was also part of the inner circle of that group. That inner circle consisted of Peter, James, his brother, and John. And of those three men, I believe John was the one disciple closest to Jesus. All three were, but John was the closest, I believe. Two reasons I believe that. One, in his gospel, John referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Not that Jesus didn't love the other others because he did, but Jesus had a special love for John. A second reason, as he hung on the cross, Jesus instructed John to care for his own mother uh, in his absence. Remember, Jesus didn't have a biological father since his mother was a virgin at the time of his conception and birth. After Jesus was born, though, his mother consummated her marriage to Joseph, and at that point, Joseph became Jesus' legal stepfather. And so Joseph is never mentioned after Jesus became an adult. So we assume that Joseph had died, or else he would have joined his mother at the crucifixion of his stepson. We aren't certain, but we believe Jesus' mother was widowed at that point at the point of his crucifixion. Most of what we know about John, we learn from his own writings. There is, though, some misunderstanding as to who John was based on a misrepresentation of him in a famous painting from Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci was born in 1452, died in 1519, more than five centuries ago. He was an Italian scientist, engineer, and inventor. He supposedly invented the scissors, but actually the ancient Egyptians had a primitive form of scissors from about 1500 BC. Da Vinci was a sculptor, an architect, and painter. He was a genius. His most famous painting is the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is the most expensive painting in existence. Some believe it's worth $1 billion. Others argue, no, it's invaluable. Uh, No price tag can be attached to it. I might add, it was oil painted on wood, not oil on canvas. Um, But Leonardo da Vinci's most famous religious painting is The Last Supper. The Last Supper, and it is the most reproduced religious painting of all time. Before we investigate that painting, though, let me, let me read from Matthew's gospel about that last meal. Matthew 26. It was Thursday evening during Passion Week, 
Jesus and his apostles were in Jerusalem in a large upstairs room, and all of them were seated together eating the Passover meal. It's called the Last Supper because it was the last meal Jesus ate just hours before his arrest that night. Notice verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Verse 21, now as they were eating, meaning in the middle of this meal, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you, meaning one of those twelve men seated there at that table, one of you will betray me. That was a shocking announcement. Verse 22, and they were exceedingly sorrowful, and notice, each of them, each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Each disciple responded to Jesus' announcement that one of them would betray him, and each man's response was the same. Essentially, Lord, could it be me? Judas Iscariot, who sold Jesus out, was such a prolific hypocrite and such a gifted con man that no one at that table suspected Judas. Instead, each apostle, including John, actually suspected themselves of being the possible potential traitor to Jesus. Da Vinci's Last Supper painting is large. It's more than 15 feet in height and some 28 feet in length. It's massive. And because it was actually painted onto a wall, it's considered a mural. In a comparative sense, the Mona Lisa is extremely small, just 30 inches in height and 21 inches in width. Most of that original painting of the Last Supper has deteriorated over time, so it's been refurbished. Some of da Vinci's original painting is left but not much. It's interesting that the Last Supper painting was created as an actual visual comment on the biblical text we just read. It was painted to capture the different reactions from each apostle seconds after Jesus told them that one of them would betray him. Leonardo tried to capture the emotional reaction from each apostle to that horrific announcement. Notice that some were angered and some were in shock and disbelief. John is supposed to be the apostle to Jesus' immediate right, his immediate right, and to our left. He's the one seen leaning away from Jesus um, at that moment. I need to mention, some historians feel that the person seated to Jesus' immediate right and to our left is not John, but Mary Magdalene in disguise. Ms. Magdalene has been mostly misunderstood. Um, she had been demon-possessed until Jesus cast seven demons out of her. The name Magdalene meant she had come from Magdala, and Magdala had a reputation for prostitution, as Amsterdam and Las Vegas do now. So the legend is that Mary Magdalene was a former prostitute. But just because she was from Magdala is not evidence or a reason to believe that Mary Magdalene was ever a prostitute. 
In John chapter 8, some of us remember this, there's the account of a woman brought to Jesus who had been caught committing adultery. The Mosaic law considered that a capital offense and said she should be stoned to death. And the scribes and Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus to see how he would react in this situation. Remember, Jesus wouldn't condemn her, but instead he said to that hypocritical crowd, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. No one did. All of them left. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mary Magdalene is depicted as that adulterous woman. But there is no biblical or historical justification in doing that. The woman called in adultery was anonymous. We don't know who she was. The best-selling movie and novel, uh, The Da Vinci Code, also claimed that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. No, that didn't happen. Jesus was single and celibate. We need to be careful because sculptors, painters, writers, movie producers sometimes abuse artistic license. And no, Jesus was not a blonde, blue-eyed European as he is so often depicted in paintings. We need to be careful and more discerning about those things we're exposed to. And Da Vinci's picture is one of those. So some people believe it was Mary Magdalene that Leonardo da Vinci painted next to Jesus, but that's a serious problem because the biblical text reads that Jesus ate that Passover meal with his 12 disciples. So if that person in Leonardo's painting is Mary Magdalene and not John, then John is missing completely from that painting. And that's not possible because we're certain John was there because his own gospel mentions he was there. And none of the gospels mention or even hint that Mary Magdalene was there. So John is the character to Jesus' immediate right. If Leonardo intended for that character to be John, and we believe he did, then notice something, and this might not be so visible toward the back. But the closer we get to the picture, this is apparent. Notice Leonardo da Vinci made John to resemble a meek, mild, pale-skinned, sort of a sissified, effeminate person. That emasculated character came from the idea that at the Passover meal, John snuggled up into Jesus' chest, looking up at him with this sort of puppy dog stare. But that image wasn't the Apostle John. I will explain that in a moment. Leonardo da Vinci was a fantastic artist, but not a good historian. From a historical perspective, Leonardo's depiction is incorrect. The, the apostles did not sit at a table in straight, upright chairs as we do now. That wasn't the custom at that time. The apostles reclined themselves on mats in front of a low table. Da Vinci pictured Jesus at the center of the table, as do most other artists, but that is also a misconception because Jesus was the host at that particular meal. It is more probable he would have been seated at the far left front corner of that table. That particular place was reserved for the host or the most special guest at that meal. 
But more important than those superficial things, Leonardo da Vinci characterized John as someone other than who he actually was. There is nothing in Scripture to indicate that John was ever less than masculine. He was a rugged, hard-edged fisherman, just as his brother James had been, and his personality wasn't all that different. According to Mark 3, verse 17, Jesus nicknamed James and his brother John. He named them Bonerges, and Bonerges meant sons of thunder. John was one of the sons of thunder. Does that sound feminine? I don't think so. John was almost as ambitious and driven and sometimes impulsive and explosive as his older brother. Notice John's own account of the Last Supper. And this is where Leonardo's misunderstanding originated. John 13, verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom. This is that same meal, the Last Supper. There was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That was John. Verse 24. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him. Meaning Peter motioned to John to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Remember, Jesus had just announced one of them would betray him. And Simon Peter was curious. We all would have been. He wanted to know who that person was. John was seated next to Jesus, and so he motioned for John to ask him to identify that person. This is the problem. Verse 23 does read, that John leaned against Jesus' bosom, and bosom implies his chest. John was purposely close to Jesus at that meal, but he wasn't snuggling against Jesus. That would have inhibited Jesus and John in eating that meal. Neither one of them would have been able to meet, eat if that were the case. John leaned against Jesus' chest momentarily, he got closer to speak to him because he didn't want the other apostles to hear that conversation, that exchange. So he leaned against Jesus' chest momentarily. It was a logistical maneuver because he personalized the question Peter had prompted him to ask. And so he said, Lord, is it I? And he didn't want the other apostles to hear that's the reason he leaned up close to Jesus. He could have even whispered that in his ear. The text doesn't implicate John as being all touchy-feely or in some sense feminine. In fact, the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record John being uh, demonstrating aggressive, self-assertive, insensitive intolerance. The only time John's name is mentioned alone. He is described as being upset and angry at someone for exercising demons. He felt that person wasn't qualified to do that, and he was upset. Then, when Jesus wasn't received in a Samaritan village, both James and John were upset, and together as brothers, this is Luke 9, verse 54. Together said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Paraphrased as Jesus, can we just toast these people? Uh, we, don't, we don't like their rejection of you. That's hardcore. 
James was the more prominent and older brother, but John had similar personal characteristics. He had been narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, overconfident, impetuous, and even volatile. He had been passionate, zealous, and personally ambitious. In the beginning, John was probably an extremist. He was missing a sense of spiritual equilibrium because his zeal, his sectarianism, his intolerance, his selfish ambition were all symptomatic of his spiritual imbalance. John was an apostle out of balance. Balance is so important. So often we are out of balance. Even if it is a legitimate virtue, If that virtue is out of balance in us, it can throw someone off and create in that person a spiritual awkwardness. It is unhealthy to push any good characteristic, any character trait, any virtue to an extreme. But something happened to John. As he matured as a disciple, John started demonstrating a significant change from what he had been earlier. Maturing does that. Get this, God transformed John to the extent that since his death, he has been known as the apostle of love. That's how we know him. He's the apostle of love, in part because he wrote more about that subject than any other New Testament author. John ultimately exchanged his liabilities for assets, and he morphed from being a self-centered fanatic and even hothead into a tender-hearted, sensitive, benevolent elder statesman. Jesus recognized, Jesus himself recognized that metamorphosis that was beginning in John. That's the reason he assigned John to care for his mother after his crucifixion and ascension into heaven. We said earlier, we assume his mother Mary had been widowed, and Jesus did not want her left alone. It is interesting that John was Jesus' preference to care for his mother because his mother had other biological children from Joseph who could have done that. After Jesus' birth, Joseph and his mother consummated their marriage and she had other children. Those children were Jesus' siblings. Those children were his half-brothers and half-sisters. And notice, none of them were selected to care for Jesus' mother. And notice none of the other apostles were assigned to care for Jesus' mother either. But Jesus was confident that John would make the best loving caregiver for his mother. And tradition states that John never left Jerusalem until Jesus' mother Mary had died. Meaning that John fulfilled that assignment Jesus gave to him. One serious cultural error we have committed as a nation is that overall, we haven't cared for our parents as we should, as those parents age. There are and there have been exceptions to that statement. And some of those exceptions are in our own congregation. Um, Some parents, they'll put their aging parents in assisted living homes or convalescent homes and then never visit them. Those institutions are good and sometimes necessary to care for our parents, but neglecting our parents 
is irresponsible and dishonoring. Remember commandment five from the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue? That commandment reads that we are to honor our father and mother. If a child is still in the house, if he's still maturing, he is to be obedient to his parents. And disobedience to someone's parents is sin. If a child has matured, though, has become an adult and left the house, then he is still to honor his parents. He's not required to be obedient at that point, but he is still required to do the honorable thing toward his parents. Aging isn't just a biological process. Aging is a cultural process. Some cultures, especially in the East, honor aging. Honor those that are elderly. And some cultures don't. Here in the West, we don't do that as much. In some cultures, the phrase old man is a term of respect, not in ours. And I admit, I should have done a better job of honoring my own mother. Um, I was close to my father. I felt I honored him as I should. I, I could have done better. We can always do better. But I... I don't feel I honored my own mother as I should have, and I serious, have serious regrets about not doing that. There are two fundamental elements God wants us as Christians to emphasize. Two elements. Those elements are truth and love. Truth and love. And John ultimately, as he matured, represented almost a perfect balance between truth and love. First notice John's commitment to truth. Out of all the New Testament writers, John is probably the most black and white in his presentation. There wasn't much gray in his teaching. He wrote in absolutes. He commented on certainties. To him it was all cut and dry. He said things in unqualified and antithetical language. He focused on truth. John made relentless, unequivocal statements because that's who he was. He was passionate about truth and wanted to be certain he wasn't misunderstood. John discussed truth in absolutes and opposites. He mentioned light. He mentioned darkness. He mentioned life. He mentioned death. He mentioned children of God. He mentioned children of Satan. He mentioned the kingdom of God. He mentioned the kingdom of of Satan. He mentioned receiving Jesus. He mentioned rejecting Jesus. He mentioned spiritual fruit. He mentioned spiritual fruitlessness. He mentioned obedience and he mentioned disobedience and on and on and on. And John continued using that same strong approach in his three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. In his second letter, John calls for a complete and total separation from all that is false and he denounced spiritual deceivers and other heretics. He uses the the language antichrist. John was a truth teller. He spoke in black and white, absolute and certain language. He spoke truth and sometimes hard truth. And that's something that is absent in the modern pulpit. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4 comment on the end times. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. Sound doctrine, sound biblical teaching. The time will come when they will not endure, meaning they won't put up with sound doctrine. And people, that time is now. But according to their own desires, 
because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Listen to that verse from the New Living Translation. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. For those that are newer um, and don't know, we don't scratch itching ears around here. We, we just don't do that. Verse 4, and they, meaning those that have itching ears, will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Fables and myths and psychobabble don't offend. Truth does. Some men in the pulpit are afraid to speak truth because truth is offensive. And more and more preachers don't want to offend as Todd Frio from Wretched Radio said, the problem with most modern preachers is that no one wants to kill them. Unlike those from the earlier centuries of the church. Let me expound on truth for a moment. The phrase modern era or modern age describes time, chronological time, after the Middle Ages. The actual word modern was coined just before 1585 to describe the beginning of this new modern age. And the modern age lasted from the Middle Ages through the first half of the last century, meaning the first half of the 20th century. There are people in our congregation who were born at the end, at the end of that modern age. Um, in essence, modernity, modern thought, argued that absolute truth does exist and that through scientific means, man can determine that truth. Modernity argued that absolute truth does exist and through scientific means, man can determine that truth. The downside to that was that the modern mind discounted the supernatural discounted the miraculous, and instead tried to find a scientific and rationalistic explanation for everything that happens. In this so-called modern age or modern era, most academic disciplines such as philosophy, science, literature, and education were driven by rationalistic presuppositions. And that meant that human reasoning Human reasoning was said to be the final determiner of what is true. But in spite of that, modern thinkers during the modern period did believe that it was possible to know absolute objective truth. It's just that they believed scientific methodologies were the only means of determining that truth. And as Christians, we disagree on that part. We do believe that the scientific approach is one means of determining truth. The other means that matters to us is to investigate Scripture for that truth. John 17, verse 17, God's Word is truth. Then there's the phrase or postmodern, the postmodern age, the postmodern era. That phrase was coined in 1949, and it describes the societal changes in economics, art, literature, journalism, 
architecture, marketing, business, and the interpretation of law, culture, and religion after the ending of the modern period. Now remember, the modern age started after the Middle Ages and extended through the centuries until the first half of the 20th century. And then the postmodern age started in the second half of the 20th century and exists now in the 21st century. So that means the modern age has ended. The modern era has ended, and we are now in the postmodern age. That is a problem. Postmodernism argues that absolute and objective truth does not exist. A complete reversal, a complete paradigm shift. Absolute and objective truth does not now exist. The postmodernists exist that there is no absolute and objective truth. Objective truth means independent of the mind. So objective truth is something that is true no matter if people believe it's true or not. And the postmodernist is convinced that there is no absolute truth. But that is a self-defeating statement. Because how can someone be absolutely certain that absolute truth doesn't exist if there are no absolutes? Did you get that? How can someone be absolutely certain that absolute truth doesn't exist if there are no absolutes? That's totally illogical. Emerging postmodern generations believe truth is subjective, not objective. These postmoderns talk about my truth and your truth. No, truth doesn't vary according to different people. There are differences in opinions. There is no, no, my truth and no, your truth. There's just truth, period. And as evangelicals, we believe absolute and objective truth does exist, and the reason it does is because God exists. The reason we are proponents of absolute and objective truth is because God exists, and both Old and New Testament state that God is in and of himself absolute and objective truth. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, calls him, O Lord God of truth. Psalm 31, verse 5, reads, O Lord God of truth. Isaiah 65, verse 16, twice reads, the God of truth. John 14, 6, Jesus, who is God incarnate, God in human form, made the statement, I am the way and the truth. John 18, verse 37, as Jesus was being tried, he said to Pontius Pilate, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, and on and on and on. Jimi Hendrix was a guitarist, singer, songwriter, and producer. According to Rolling Stone magazine and countless other sources, he is considered to be the greatest electric guitarist in the history of rock music. And notice he was a left-handed guitarist, extremely rare. It has been said Jimi Hendrix was performing a concert and at a point between songs, some from, someone from the audience screamed out, Jimmy, hear the truth. 
Imagine someone screaming, Jimmy, you're the truth. It is said Mr. Hendricks heard that, turned around and said in all seriousness, I am not the truth. I don't even know the truth. The incarnate truth, meaning the truth in human form, is Jesus himself. And unfortunately, Jimi Hendrix didn't know the truth that is Jesus. On September 18, 1970, at only age 27, Jimi Hendrix died in London under mysterious circumstances. Some claim he died from an accidental drug overdose. Others insist he literally drowned in massive amounts of red wine he had consumed earlier in the evening. That wine might have been forcefully consumed because a book in 2009 provided evidence to implicate that his manager had Hendricks murdered because Jimmy wanted to end his management contract. The doctor who examined his body seemed to confirm that possibility, but we don't know. No one knows. Notice the definition. Absolute and objective truth is that which is consistent with God's being and character. Absolute and objective truth is that which is consistent with God's being and character. If something isn't consistent with who God is and what God is about, then it cannot be true. And because that definition of truth is an extension of God... Truth is therefore theological. God is the author, source, determiner, governor, arbiter, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. All truth must ultimately be defined in terms of God. So John's commitment to truth is unquestionable, as we're going to see through this book. The second essential element is love. And John's theological commitment to love can be summarized in ten statements that he made himself. God is love. Love is personified in God himself. God loved his son, Jesus. God loved Jesus' disciples. God loves all men. Um, he doesn't love all men the same, but he does love all mankind. God is loved by His Son, Jesus. God's Son, Jesus, loved His disciples. God's Son, Jesus, loves individuals. Remember, throughout John's gospel, John never uses his own name. Instead, he identifies himself as, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus was the ultimate people person. It concerns me that more and more pastors ignore people. Ignore that the church is a people business. The word pastor means shepherd. Pastors are spiritual shepherds. Christians are spiritual sheep. The congregation is a flock of spiritual sheep. But more and more pastors don't want sheep smell on themselves. More and more pastors don't want to get close to people. Some pastors love crowds but don't care that much about people. God's Son, Jesus, expects all men to love Him. God's Son, Jesus, taught that we should love one another. God's Son, Jesus, emphasized that love is the fulfilling of the whole law. These are statements from John. Love became a critical part of each element of John's teaching. It became the dominant emphasis of his theological writings. 
But that love John had never deteriorated into indulgent sentimentalism because at the end of his lifetime, he still continued to defend the truth and speak out against false doctrine and false teachers. As he matured, John started becoming more and more balanced in his person. John didn't lose his aggressiveness but he added a strong element of love to that passion so as to give him the spiritual balance he needed. Over time, John evolved into someone who had an excellent balance between truth and love. There's so much imbalance in us. There's so much imbalance in the modern church. Some people are all about truth. Those people tend to become proud arrogant, inflexible, intolerant, legalistic, judgmental, and pharisaical. Other people are all about love. And those people tend to be too tolerant, too flexible, would never confront someone. Holiness is never a consideration. Sin gets a pass. And these people can sometimes be into hyper-grace or antinomianism where basically anything is okay. We should be all about both, both truth and love. John learned to care as much about people as he cared about truth. To illustrate the balance John evolved into, John used the actual word truth 45 times in his five books. But he also used associated words that related to the truth. He used the word witness as in witnessing the truth 30 times. He used its word, the word record as he recorded the truth 13 times. And he used the word testify as in he testified to the truth 25 times. Altogether there were a total of 78 references to truth in John's writings. In contrast, he used the word love 80 times in his writings. He used truth and its related words 78 times. He used love 80 times. 78 and 80 represent almost a perfect balance. The slightest, slightest edge going to love. And because we should want to benefit from John's example and become more balanced ourselves, then we should do as Paul said, Ephesians 4 verse 15, speak the truth, how? In love. We should start praying something I read recently. Dear God, help me to say what I mean and mean what I say, but don't say it mean. That's another form of truth balanced together with love. One reason a balance between truth and love is so critical is because postmoderns don't understand that authentic love cannot be love apart from truth. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, contains 16 different characteristics that describe love. And we did an entire series on that section and on each of those characteristics. Notice from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, second half, characteristic 11, love rejoices in the truth. Love cannot be authentic love if that love is missing truth. Don't miss this principle. True love loves truth. True love, authentic love, real love, loves truth. 
One of the most bizarre examples of that was in one of our previous congregations. For some reason, I had been invited to speak at another church's college group. I sat there during the middle of a group discussion time, and there was one student there who was emphasizing that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said we should love everyone and we shouldn't hate anyone. That's Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. So he, he said we should love everyone, we shouldn't hate anyone. And then he extrapolated from Jesus' statements and said that we should even love Satan. Not hate Satan, love Satan. And some other students joined in and said, yeah, yeah, we should love Satan. I'm sitting there about to blow a head gasket until I couldn't endure any more of this ridiculous theology. So I stood up and said, no, 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 no. We shouldn't love Satan because true love cannot love Satan. Psalm 97 verse 10 reads, you who love the Lord hate evil. True and authentic love that loves God hates evil. And love is personified in Satan. He is the originator of all evil. Don't love Satan. Hate Satan. Call him names. Throw things at him. But don't love him. Remember, true love loves truth. In conclusion, I want us to see a short video clip of a man. He pastored here in the States for some time. And now he is a successful missionary in Africa. And I want us to listen to his account of how he learned to balance truth and love. When our oldest son Dylan was 13 years old, he asked to meet with Gina and I. And so I'll never forget, we went to Starbucks and uh, Dylan is by far the most intelligent of our children and has always uh, just been special and unique in many, many different ways. But uh, the first announcement that he made to us was that he was not a Christian. Dylan had been baptized when he was in third grade or fourth grade, nine or ten years old. Uh, and I did everything that I knew to do as both his pastor and his dad to nurture his faith. But I could tell even in the aftermath of his baptism that he wasn't really interested in spiritual things. He had friends at the church, but that was really the extent. So when he met with us and said that he was not a Christian and that Jesus Christ, if he existed at all, was merely a man, a human being, another religious leader, but that it didn't make any sense to him that God could somehow come in human flesh. Uh, I was a professor of apologetics at a university at the time. Um, I looked at Gina and I saw tears beginning to form in her eyes and trickle down her cheeks when he said, Secondly, I want you to know that I'm gay and that I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. He's 13 years old at the time and that I'm going to pursue who I am. And, and when he told me that, I, I have to be honest with you, all I can do is tell you our story. And I don't want to project that on any 
folks that might be struggling with these same issues. All I can tell you is that I really wasn't surprised. And so I reached across the table and I embraced my son. And I said, Dylan, I want you to know two things. Number one, I'm your dad and I'll always be your dad and I'll always love you. And that never changes. And secondly, I'm concerned because I believe the path that you're taking and the choice that you're making as such a young guy is going to bring a lot of pain and a lot of hurt in your life. But I'll always be here. And by that time, my wife composed herself and we all hugged each other and Dylan hugged us back. And over the next uh, seven or eight years, it was really, really heartbreaking as I saw my son uh, begin to take a downward spiral. He's a brilliant young man. He won a scholarship to Columbia University in journalism. Um, so his grades and those kinds of things were never a, an issue, but I began to see a hardening of his heart toward the things of God. We never imposed upon our children the burden of being pastor's kids. We never, never, never imposed that. And we didn't allow the church to impose that. But I did see my son completely losing interest in church. Now we all went to church every Sunday, but then after a while, I was on the road full time by the time Dylan was 15. And it was a real struggle. My son began to uh, use drugs. Um, he began to run with a crowd of people that I knew was not healthy. And I lovingly tried to speak into his life, be very honest, very frank. At times I probably lost my cool. But by the grace of God, we never closed the door to our son emotionally. And we just prayed for him and loved him and spoke truth into his life. But he was arrested the first time and charged with uh, minor drug possession, a misdemeanor. And I went and got him out of jail. He had been arrested at a park. And Dylan was unrepentant. He just said, it's not that big of a deal, Dad. Everybody my age smokes dope. And of course, I was a drug addict by the time I was Dylan's age. And I knew where all of this gateway drug marijuana leads eventually. And it, it led that way for Dylan. Within weeks of that arrest, he was arrested a second time. And this time when he called me from the jail and said, Dad, well, can you come get me? The Holy Spirit said to me, leave him in there because I'm working in his heart. It was a very difficult thing to do. And uh, after a few days, he called and he got into a program that got him released. And he said, Dad, could you pick me up? So we swung by and picked up Dylan and we went to one of our famous restaurants, our favorite restaurants and Dylan didn't say a word, he's very stoic. And Dylan is not an emotional kind of guy, but I did look over and I saw tears in his eyes. We pulled into the restaurant and got our table and he began to sob and shake in the middle of this crowded restaurant that we frequented quite often and he just began to wail, I'm so lost, I'm so lost. And he said, Dad, 
I've been such a fool. And I thought I was smarter than you and mom and I thought I knew everything and you knew nothing. And then he said, Dad, I'm so lost. I need Jesus in my life. Dylan was born again that day. And that was four or five years ago now and his life has changed. He's celibate. He's living for Christ. He's going to church. He's working. He's in New York now. And what I want to say to you parents, if you're struggling with this, is don't ever close the door on the relationship. Keep loving your child. I look back at some of the things I'm so glad I never called my son names. I never said, you're not my son anymore. I never said, God doesn't love you anymore. Keep the door open. Keep loving your child. I just know that if God saved me and God saved some of you who are watching, God can save anybody. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. It's just sin like every other sin. And God loves sinners. Thank God he loved us. Thank God he loved Dylan. And about four or five years ago, we got a new son. He's growing up. He's maturing. And in his own way, he's following the path that the Lord has put in front of him. I hope this is helpful to you. God bless you. Thank you for watching this video. Did you hear what he said? By the grace of God, we never close the door to our son emotionally. We just prayed for him and loved him and spoke truth into his life. That's the balance we need. Truth. Uncompromising truth. A willingness to defend the truth, fight for the truth. And then love. Unending love truth and love. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, um, I don't know if any of us will ever achieve the balance we want or the balance you desire, but I think we should all strive to have that balance of truth and love. John did. Help us to uh, never be satisfied and to continue to strive for that balance until the day we meet you. It's so easy in this society, in this culture, to compromise truth because the pushback from a secular society that hates you uh, is severe. And, and there's persecution that can come. God, help us never, ever to back down from truth. But God, through all of that, help us to love. Help it to be very, very apparent to everyone around us that we love you with all of our heart and we love them as we should. So God, I just commit this sermon to you, and I pray that you'll use it to make a difference in each one of us. And I thank you in Jesus' special name. Amen.